Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. This isn't as much of a joke, but um, I love and what about Bob when Bill Murray says, uh, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's social gatherings. You just got a joke from actor Jason Schwartzman that'll help break the ice. Yes. He co-stars with Adam Scott in the new movie The Overnight. We'll hear from both of them later. Plus, we chat with none other than Al Pacino about his new movie Manglehorn as well as The Godfather and his seminal work, Jack and Jill. Classic. Also coming up, singer-songwriter Flo Morrissey DJs your dinner party. We get a brief history of red hair, and we learn why you shouldn't take palm readings seriously. But first, I predict small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Identify as black. Rachel Dolezal in an interview this morning with NBC's Today Show. The Chicago Blackhawks beat the Tampa Bay Lightning 2 to nothing to win the Stanley Cup. The Golden State Warriors are the 2015 NBA champions. Now for a story you might not have heard. We're speaking with Erin McCann. She is news editor at The Guardian newspaper in America. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I have a story today about a 15-year-old boy who has already accomplished more in his life than any of us will. <laughs> oh, no. Thanks well, a that, lot. Wait, our lives or when we were 15? I think probably our lives. Okay. Because what? Tom Wagg, who is now 17, two years after this amazing event happened, on a five-day work experience, which is what the British call an internship, okay. on day three of this five-day internship, he discovered a new planet. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, wow. He was 15 years old when he spotted the planet while doing work experience at the Keele University, and it's taken the last two years to prove that it exists. All right, so this wasn't a comic okay. book. That, no, that no, it was wasn't. It, probably, it could be now. I'd, I'd go see that Marvel film. Where is this planet? I'm assuming not in our solar system, or we might have heard about the it. The planet is thousands of light years away and is the size of Jupiter. But astronomers, the story notes, are still working hard to find much smaller, more Earth-sized planets nearby. Man, that's Why? just them trying to make up for the fact that an intern totally schooled yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, 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 Jupiter size, but we need a whole exactly. bunch of small ones. I mean, imagine your Harvard application, accomplishments, found a planet. But that's oh the upside, God. but the downside is you'll never reach this level of joy or success again in your life. Like, driver's license, <laughs> you're abroad. Wait. Like, no, way to make this kid feel terrible, Brendan. I hope he's not listening right now. He's not because he just thinks he's a god. He's got he's, true he's, love to look forward to. He doesn't listen to anyone. Well, and the story <laughs> says that he's he's intending to go into physics. So this is the rest of his life. But again, like he's not going to top this unless he finds no. life yeah. on another planet. I think Aaron hit it on the head. He's going to be the first to discover an alien. The kid's going to be fine. Aaron, <laughs> thank you for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our globally admired history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1972, pro baseball notched up a historic first. Grudgingly. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. You are supposed to get three strikes in baseball. Bernice Guerra got one. Bernice was born loving baseball. As a kid, she could bat harder than the guys. But she was a 36-year-old housewife before she suddenly got an idea to become the first female umpire. She headed to Florida for umpire school, and the trouble began. They had no dorms for ladies, so Bernice spent the six-week course in a motel. 
Then she signed a minor league contract, which was revoked six days later, partly because the league found the player's language too salty for a lady. She called foul and sued for discrimination. Years later, she won, sort of. In June 1972, Bernice umped her first minor league game and then quit when she realized the other umps just wouldn't cooperate with her during the game. Later, she said, quote, I could beat them in the courts, but not on the field. Bernice didn't abandon baseball. She went on to work in PR for the New York Mets. Her umpire's uniform now hangs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. To this day, no woman has ever umped a regular season major league game. So that's the summer appropriate history. Now for a drink to pair with it, I am on the line with Larry Four. He is the bar manager at the Ravenous Pig in Winter Park, Florida, which is close by America's only professional umpire schools. So uh, what drink did this history inspire you to make? Well, what I did was uh, made a cocktail I'm calling Pastime. It's sort of a play on a classic cocktail called an aviation. Oh, okay, sure. The aviation with gin. Yeah, absolutely. Gin, lemon juice, maraschino liqueur little sugar that's usually served up. Okay. What's in your drink? I wanted to make a drink, you know, a little bit lighter, a little bit more summer, as baseball is predominantly a summertime sport. And I did try to use as much American or uh, local ingredients as possible. Okay. Um, I do uh, carry a vodka here from Flagler, which is in uh, Palm Coast, Florida, not actually too far from the Ormond Beach area, so I thought that would be pretty appropriate. That's right, home of one of the umpire schools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then I'm using a liqueur from Chicago called Hum. Um, the Cubs are one of my favorite uh, baseball teams, so I had to kind of give them a little bit love. Okay, but it's not clear to me that the Cubs understand baseball, so is that appropriate for... <laughs> That's the uh, pain of being Cubs fan. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we can nullify the pain. What else is in the drink? Okay, a um, little bit of our house-made sour mix. So that is three parts lime juice, one part lemon juice, and one part simple syrup, and I make that every day here at the Pig. Okay. Um, Basically, all those components together, shaking everything there on ice, straining it into a rocks glass uh, full of ice, and then topping it with a little champagne. Yeah, and I noticed there's no chewing tobacco in this cocktail. No, no, I think uh, think that's best on the side. And we should note, we taped that interview a while back. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the Cubs are actually doing pretty well. That's right, at the moment. Mm -hmm. the operative phrase. (laughs) Meanwhile, folks, if you want a historically sure bet, subscribe to our email newsletter. We guarantee it will show up to play every week. And at each one, you'll find a cocktail recipe like the one you just heard. Sign up at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made some small talk, had a drink. Now let's hear some music. And here with suggestions is UK singer-songwriter Flo Morrissey. At the ripe old age of 18, she uploaded her delicate song, If You Can't Love, This All Goes Away. The internet fell in love with it, and now two years later, she is releasing her debut album of evocative folk pop. It's called Tomorrow Will Be Beautiful. Here she is to DJ this party. Hi, I'm Flo Morrissey, and I've been asked to make a dinner party soundtrack, but funnily enough, I have never thrown a dinner party. I actually still live at home with my family and I can't cook, so the food might not be good, but at least the soundtrack will be good. For my first song, I would choose Mama Mama Says by Ibei. There is no life without him. I saw them first on Jules Holland, which is a kind of like R. Conan or 
Jimmy Fallon or something like that. They're French twin sisters of Yoruban descent, and their dad was from the Buena Vista Social Club. He was one of the drummers in it. This song is more stripped back, and it's Lisa playing on piano, and she's got a kind of Nina Simone vibe to her. And then Naomi plays like this wooden box as kind of like beats and drums. They also sing Yoruban chants and incorporate that in some of their music. It's kind of of this time, but not, which I think is really special and unique. For my next song, I'm going to pick Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On. It's one of my favourite films, um, Austin Powers. Dr. Evil and Frau start to get it on, and I actually remember being kind of embarrassed watching it when I was like 15. I feel the song itself is quite quite sensuous, but also it has that feeling of vulnerability to it too, which I like. At this point, maybe two of my friends who'd never met before are kind of like hitting it off, but um, that's why I would put it on my dinner party list because everybody knows it and it's a feel-good kind of song. My next song I'm going to pick for the dinner party would be Jealous Guy by John Lennon. He is another timeless songwriter and this song, it just brings up a nice familiar feeling to people too. it's slightly somber for a dinner party but I love the simplicity of the song and that gives space for for new things to arise in the dinner party I think the song could also be quite a funny like ironic little link from let's get it on my two friends getting it on and then there's the jealous guy in the corner so it's you know everybody's feeling involved (laughs) if i was asked to play one of my songs it would be sleeplessly dreaming that would be a good one to end on because it's maybe quite late and we're all going to be slightly sleeplessly dreaming tonight, whether that be from the food or if someone's had too much to drink. You crossed the line, but I suppose I didn't you. Uncover gold from this mine, I am glad that we can be true. 
So I guess now I have the soundtrack sorted, I need to go home and figure out how to cook a bit. Dinner Party soundtrack from Flo Morrissey. Her debut album, Tomorrow Will Be Beautiful, came out this week in the UK. Next week, she will be playing the Glastonbury Festival. Enrico, I'm still coming to terms with the fact that Flo learned about Marvin Gaye from Austin Powers. (laughs) (laughs) That almost makes up for years of enduring people saying, yeah, baby. Yeah. Almost. Some good did come (laughs) from all that. All right, folks, coming up, acting legend Al Pacino explains an essential step in his vaunted acting method. Well, first of all, I showed up to the set. That's craft. Plus, Jason Schwartzman and Adam Scott when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, film and TV stars Jason Schwartzman and Adam Scott tackle your etiquette questions. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Al Pacino. Oh, man. I'm not sure he needs an introduction, but here goes. He's starred in such classic films as The Godfather, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, and Scent of a Woman. Mm. On TV, he's won critical acclaim for his portrayal of Jack Kevorkian and Phil Spector. On stage, he's performed Brecht, Mamet, Shakespeare, and Wilde. He's won an Oscar, two Emmys, two Tonys, and four Golden Globe Awards. And this week, his latest film, Manglehorn, comes out. Directed by David Gordon Green, this film follows a small-town locksmith as he tries to get over his past. Here's a clip where Manglehorn's son comes to him for help. Help? What kind of help? I got a, I got a pull-out sofa in the house. You want, you want that? You want to stay here? You know, you know what I want? It would be great if you could... Uh could be a father. What is that? How about that? Could be okay, Jacob. You know, gonna be good, Jacob. Could be okay. Gonna be okay. okay. Is that what being a dad is? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. When I spoke with Pacino, I asked him how he got into his character. Well, first of all, I showed up to the set. <laughs> That's good. That was major for me. <laughs> I had to pick up and pack a bag and go to Austin, Texas. That was a, a mini achievement for me. Well done. And, and then I went out and tried to understand where this guy was coming from. I think he has an element of Asperger's in him. That's one of the first things I picked up from the script. I can see that. And that's interesting since David Gordon Green based it on me. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, well, uh, does he know something I don't? Do you feel like you identify with that? You know, when you do a part, you try to find whatever you can identify with. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to play this person. You know, if the person has a limp, then you say, how did he get the limp? Yeah, And that sort of informs you. So you're always looking for something to inform you. And that's in keeping with your belief in method acting, Yeah, where an actor tries to emotionally identify with a part. Which got me thinking, you were in this goofy Adam Sandler movie called Jack and Jill, Yeah, which did well at the box office, but it wasn't The Godfather. No. Uh, It (laughs) wasn't the best reviewed movie ever, but you got excellent reviews. In the movie, you play a slightly exaggerated version of Al Pacino. Yeah. How did you prepare for that role? Yeah. Like what, as a method actor? Well, I, believe it or not, I prepared a lot. I thought, how can I come up with a character that that could be some kind of image of me or whatever it is? And yeah. and here's this guy 
to, you know, had, had, you know, these failed marriages with kids from different people running around L.A., a place he doesn't want to be in because he just doesn't relate to it, and having a mini breakdown yeah. or more than that and finding this Bronx girl who just takes him way back and he becomes obsessed with her and sees what isn't there. Now, that was the that was the game plan. You know, how it turned out, well... So to prep for the role, did you watch your own movies? Absolutely not, no. Once, you know, the only time I really watch a movie I'm in, basically, the only real time, is when I'm when the movie's not done and I can make some contribution to it. Then once it's done, it, there's no sense. Don't put yourself through that if you ever make a movie. Oh, once interesting. Once it's done and you can't do anything about it, go and look another way. Well, back to Manglehorn, which maybe you haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, there, there are a lot of lovely scenes where you're at a pancake jamboree, you're at a bank, you're at a club, and your character is doing a lot of normal public things that mm-hmm. I imagine is very difficult for Al Pacino to do anymore. Uh, does not having anonymity make it harder for you to do your job? Does it make it more difficult to prepare for a role? Actually, you would think it would, but it, it sort of doesn't because a lot of people let you in partially because they know you. Hmm. For instance, if I go to play at Short Order Cook, I hang with Short Order Cooks. That's not a special thing to do. Most actors do it. You yeah. know, it's, it's accessible stuff. You just go in there. And in a lot of ways, you're more welcome than it was in the old days when you just, I used to sit in strange restaurants and, and study people. <laughs> yeah. They would say, who's this rude here, you know, just a creepy guy. <laughs> but you reflect. I, I sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll just hear somebody, especially if I'm scouting a role. The other day, I was watching uh, something on television, an interview, and this guy was speaking, and I thought, gee, I wish I had known about this guy before I went to do this. Uh huh. Because you, I saw something in the nature of the way he spoke that that was a good image for a certain character I'm going to play. You mm-hmm. know. So you're always looking for something to inform you if you're going to play a character. Usually I'm informed by the text and by repeating the text over and over again and working on it. In interviews, you often talk about how important the text is to you. Mm-hmm. And, and you're yes. a public fan of great writing. You've done docudramas about Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde. Yeah. And yet you're also known as an improvisational actor. 20 takes, never the same thing twice. How yeah. do these two seemingly different ideas go together? Well, there's certain texts you go off on, and they allow you to in the movies to go off on them because you know it's not it's 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 open season, especially on new things. But I believe as a method of working, improvisation is is very interesting to get you to a certain place. If you start improvising or on the scene that you're playing, and just say, well, you come in and you start talking about how you're feeling, you know what's going through your head. It's wonderful if you have the time, what you find out, and it's the best ever is when a writer's present hearing mm. that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a collaborative effort you do together. Way back, Dog Day Afternoon. Can you remember that? I do, back? I do. The Attica moment, it was improvised. Well, was the Attica not? moment, but also with, when the final phone call comes with... Uh, That's right. Uh, the two guys, his boyfriend. Yes, and yes. And, and for those who haven't seen it, in Dog Day Afternoon, your character held up a bank mm-hmm. to fund a sex change operation for his lover. Yeah. And at one point, the police are listening in to a phone call between the two. And well, Chris Sarandon and I did three improvisations that Sidney Lumet taped in rehearsal. 
and he edited them down to the scene. Hmm. It's a 14-minute scene on screen, but it, it still was came out of, out of Sydney's uh, putting it together. Are they on the phone now? Yeah. That's great, Leon. You know, that's really terrific. You talk to me with them on the phone. That's really smart. Well, I don't have a choice. What do you mean you didn't have a choice? Well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, they're, they're standing all around me. There's 7,000 cops all around me. Who's on the phone now? But don't lay it on me. I'm not laying it on you, but you you knew what was going on, right? What are you talking about laying it on you? You knew what was happening, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, don't, uh, I didn't have who's a on choice. The, I wanna, I... Who's on the phone now? Moretti. Moretti, is that you on the phone? Hello? Was somebody talk to me? Somebody going to talk to me or what? Another role where you kind of went your own way and veered away from the text was The Godfather, where you, of course, played Michael Corleone. I read that the people behind the film, not Coppola, but other people, wanted you to make Corleone more animated and alpha, but you decided to focus instead on his intelligence and and interior life. Well, you know, it was Francis Coppola, who I was in sync with, who allowed me to do that. Mm. You know, at the time, I didn't quite know how to articulate it to him, uh, what I was doing. I just didn't know how to say it. It was more of an unconscious thing. But he was right there, always right there. It's probably one of the reasons he he chose me to play the part because that's what he wanted. But but yet Mario Puzo wasn't really impressed at first. How did you have the uh, confidence to kind of go for this quieter performance? Well, you know, I was I always was I always felt as though I didn't know how to do it any other way. And I think that, you know, I always made me feel like well, I was inadequate. Mm. because I didn't know what else to do. I thought the element of the character, the main thing I held on to, was that I wanted at the end of this movie to have something there that surprised an audience, that made them go, oh man, where did this guy come from? Where the f*** is Who is he? Yeah. I don't want to know him. I don't know him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Who the hell is he? Yeah. Mission accomplished. Wow. I mean, that was so, that, yeah, that was very good to have that happen. That felt good. Today I settle all family business, so don't tell me you're innocent, Carlo. Admit what you did. Get him a drink. Come on. Don't be afraid, Carlo. Come on, you think I make my sister a widow? Yeah. All right. Well, it's time to take care of our show's business. We have sure. two standard questions that we ask Great. each of our guests. Great. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? Well, I think it's absurd to ask someone how old they are when they're my age. <laughs> That's almost like asking him. He's just saying, oh, oh, by the way, how long do you have left? <laughs> so yeah. That, do people do that? One. Do people ask They you? actually do. Say, how old are you? Jeez. I say, are you kidding? <laughs> I don't know. All I know is I was born in 1967. And that's, of, course, of, of course you were. Of course you were. You're reborn every day. Of uh, course. Yeah. There it is. And then the other question we ask people is we ask yeah. them to tell us something we don't know. And this is something about you that you haven't shared before. Or mm-hmm. it can just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Uh, let me see. I mean, uh, oh, I was thinking of something the other day that I've, I've come to. In this day and age, it's very appropriate for the time we live in. Okay. I'm watching two movies just the other day. And I, and I go on one channel and I watch them because I liked both of these movies. Mm-hmm. And instead of recording one, 
I watched them both at the same time. And this is how you do it. You put the pause button on one of them, and then you <laughs> touch a button, you go back to the other one, uh -huh. and that's been paused by you, and then you unpause it. Then you get to a certain point, you pause it, you go back to the other one, and it's still paused. <laughs> this is using modern, modern technique, man. Wow. This is the way to go. This is the future. <laughs> Watching two movies at the same... But I hope... You never watch two movies of mine at the same time. That's all. At the beginning of this, you were saying maybe you had Asperger's, but it sounds like you have ADD. Oh. There it is. No, I, <laughs> I didn't, but I've, since last week, I think I've entered a new phase. Al Pacino. There it is. And Rico, I know he advised against it, but watching Glengarry Glenn Ross and Scarface at the same time, it's a really rewarding experience. Oh, you could probably go... <laughs> 20 minutes that way and hear nothing but profanity. Exactly. That's what you want. <laughs> Folks, we encourage you both to listen to our show and to visit our website simultaneously. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. Okay, and speaking of polite conversation, let us learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around are Jason Schwartzman and Adam Scott. Jason is known for his starring roles in Wes Anderson films like Rushmore and in the HBO series Bored to Death. Adam starred in the beloved NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation, and they both star in the very smart and funny new indie film The Overnight. That's right. Adam plays half of a couple with a kid who have just moved to L.A. and are desperate to make friends. Jason's character and his wife invite them over for what turns out to be a revelatory and awkwardly sexy dinner party. Mm. Uh, as you might imagine, some of our conversation may deal with adult themes. Parents might want to send their kids off to play for the next five minutes. First, here's a scene in which the fateful dinner party invitation is extended. Well, why don't you come over like 5, 5.30? We're at 1983 Cameron Court. Done. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That's Great. really cool. nice. See you and there. let's do not bring anything. Okay. Just bring yourselves. We have everything covered, okay? No cheating. Going to Whole Foods <laughs> now. Any dietary restrictions? I don't think Screw so. Screw it. You guys, I'm so excited. Yay! All right. See you later, Kurt. Bye, buddy. And Adam, welcome. Thank you. And welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you. I love this place. You like what we did with it? Of course I'm coming back. You like all the pictures of you on the walls now? Yeah. It's a little creepy. <laughs> so this movie, The Overnight, it's going to be, mm -hmm. I mean, some th people I think are going to classify it as a sex comedy. Sure, mm -hmm. yeah. But there's something going on deeper at the core. It's, yeah. you know, it's about picture-perfect looking couples yeah. that are actually struggling a lot mm -hmm. with... Am I raising my kids right? Am I, have I chosen the right partner? You know, for me personally, what struck me about this script was, I mean, I remember going from high school to Los Angeles and not knowing anyone and realizing after a few weeks that I can be whoever I want. I can do, you know, pull mm -hmm. off a complete reinvention if I want. And I think that's a really healthy thing for people to go through. And I think, you know, you shed a skin of sorts. But once you get married and start having kids and need to be a rock for people, that that sort of thing kind of slows down. And, uh, and I think these characters uh, in this movie are all looking to shed a skin, but they don't know how and they don't know if they mm. can. So if I'm understanding, you're not Adam Scott? Then no, you... I am a lizard who just shed his skin <laughs> oh, outside the door. okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Really handsome. Thank you. And Jason, are you actually Jason? Did you invent yourself it's... in L.A. too? Well, I think what Adam's talking about is true. You know, I last year, my uh, wife's business partners, husband and wife, who are also our really dear friends, moved from L.A. to Austin. And I remember thinking, 
God, that's so weird. So what do they do now? Right. Like, how do you make friends? And also, you know, really good friends in my life have been a part of, in some way, big things in my life. And I was thinking, like, so when you meet someone, you have no archive of anything like that. Yeah. And so yeah. what do you, do you catch them up? Like, uh, so here's some are. of the things right. that have happened to me. Or do you just yeah, start yeah. fresh? And as new things start to happen, yeah. that becomes your new right history with that person. Yeah, the idea of kindling a grown-up friendship is one of the more interesting things you tackle in this movie. But there is actually something equally interesting. The most important issue at the heart of this movie, you guys are totally full frontal, <laughs> buck naked, mm-hmm. in tons <laughs> of scenes in this film. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the respective sizes of your character's genitalia is one of the major issues they grapple with. Mm-hmm. We understand prosthetics were involved. Mm-hmm. So is it technically nudity? Great question. And let me say one thing that um, we've done these Q&As uh, for the movie. And, you know, well into the Q&A, this woman, like, raised her hand and she was kind of in the front row and really very much, like, in front of me, like, almost dead on looking up at me. And she was like, I just want to say bravo for you guys, like, being beautiful naked men <laughs> and having finally the, the 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 courage to just be naked yeah totally nude all of you showing she... all of you and uh, i remember just thinking like oh no she thinks that that's really me being naked and uh, it was just sad because i realized that she really she believed in me and and, yeah. and i didn't want to let her down and the thing is that it brought up this very question of well She's talking about the courage of being naked. Yeah. And and was I naked? And someone did say they were prosthetics and the look on her face was oh, so, crestfallen. Uh, it was beyond it was un- <laughs> it was like a blimp making an emergency landing. <laughs> oh. it was you broke her prosthetic heart. I will it say sad. it was strange because we each had a prosthetic and they were very real looking. Yeah. And so once they were on it's all we were wearing, so for all intents and purposes, everybody there was seeing exactly what we look like. <laughs> exactly. But wow. the fact was that it wasn't real, so yeah. there's this psychological barrier up yeah. where Jason and I were far more relaxed. Yeah, we were oh, at craft service, like just... Yeah, <laughs> not, like true? nothing <laughs> was like, going on. These? Have yeah. you tried these? And Completely forgetting <laughs> yeah, about yeah, them. Yeah, totally. And, uh, Is that wow. really true? Did you just kind of stroll around? Well, that's an example. That's a hypothetical. But that was the feeling was very casual, yeah. I think. Because I noticed people would try to like deadlock my eyes and ask me a question and never look <laughs> like it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. you could feel they were trying not to look. Mm-hmm. And... There was a moment where we, I felt like Adam and I had to sort of say, like, please don't please look. treat us like this. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know? can look as much as you want. Yeah. It's, it may as well be a, a, a coin purse I'm holding. Yeah. Doesn't matter. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. We wow. were going to ask you. It's not even my coin purse. No. This could be your, when this thing is done, this could be your coin purse. That's right. I borrowed it from the makeup department. Yeah, they just, they just let me borrow this. Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman, stars of the new film, The Overnight. You can see those prosthetics on the big screen in theaters now. And we're going to take a break, but in a minute, we finally get around to posing your etiquette questions to Adam and Jason. Nice. Plus, a brief history of redheads when the Dinner Party download continues. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, one of Hollywood's hottest filmmakers tells us about his 20-plus year curse. But right now, we are here with Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman. Yes, we've been speaking with them about the new comedy movie, The Overnight, in which they star. They also starred, respectively, in the hit TV shows Parks and Recreation and Bored to Death, all of which make them eminently qualified to tell you how to behave. That's right. Our listeners have sent in etiquette questions. Are you gentlemen ready to answer these? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Here's something from a guy calling himself New Dad in the Midwest. And New Dad writes, not surprisingly, we have a six-month-old and are ready to be social again. How do we know if an invite from friends is also an invite for our daughter? She loves bars. Not everyone loves babies. I don't know. We were never the people that brought the baby to the bar. You and your wife? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that before. It's like, hey, check, we have our baby here. Aren't we crazy? It's like, well, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, kind kind of of. a pain in the (laughs) for you. And yeah, but at the same time, we had a baby that was tough, so we couldn't do that. So Uh I don't know. Why don't you just get a babysitter and go go to the bar? Although when I get a question like this, I do have to, you know, and this is part of the movie, actually, that the European way, right, would be, you you don't let your kid determine how you live your life. You bring them and, but a bar sounds different than a cafe. Sure. Sounds raucous. Yeah. I, like Adam, like we would probably get a babysitter. I think it's important to have time away from the baby. They say yeah. oftentimes when you have a new kid and you start going on a, on dates and having a date night that you should try to not talk about the baby. Have you heard this theory? Huh. When you no. go out, there's like a tendency to just say like, so what do you think? Do you think she's down? Yeah, do you think yeah, she's yeah, sleeping? Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like um, the idea is to go out and have a... Refresh your... Uh, yeah, sure. about yourselves and talk yeah. about yourselves. Obviously, it's... But you know what, guys? I think we we missed the question. How do we know if an invite from friends is also an invite for our daughter? If it was an invite for your daughter, they would say kids welcome. Uh, yeah. But what if you're like the first person in your friend group to have a kid and they're just not used <laughs> to asking that question? Then just leave the kid at home. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If, they're, if they're the first kid in the group of friends, then no one knows how to make the party comfortable for them. We yeah. made the mistake of bringing our kids once to a party, the people that don't have kids, and they said, go ahead and bring the kids. It's not a big deal. And the party was definitely not yeah. great for kids. It was just fire <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was all Broken bad. glass. Yeah. Razor blade floor. ping pong. Yeah. Yeah. It was not right. <laughs> no. All right, new dad, I think we answered your question. Right. This next question comes from Mara in Chicago. I think this one's for you, Adam. Oh. Uh, because you have you co-host a podcast called You Talking You 2 to Me. That's right. Which is about You 2 the band. Yeah. So Mara's question is, say you're a U2 fan, uh-huh. but someone is really ragging on U2 in front of you how do you politely tell them to can it? Oh, I don't. You know, I, U2 is such a ubiquitous presence in the world that it's just interesting to talk about a band that's kind of pervaded life on Earth in that way. And wow. uh, there is a whole range of opinions, and they've made a lot of moves uh, in their career that have been questionable. But I, I think that, <laughs> I mean, it but, did bother me how how the new record being downloaded to everybody's phone, how oh, yeah. angry people got about that, I thought was really ridiculous. Yeah, why? How privileged a society do we live in where this is what people yeah. are up in oh, arms no, you about? gave me free music? Yeah, it, I thought you? it was crazy. I think that if you actually think that your rights are being infringed upon, you might be ridiculous. And uh, Jason, do you have anything to add on the yeah, YouTube issue? I think you issue? said it beautifully. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> well done. Here's something from AJ in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, would AJ... you guys stop talking about the YouTube? <laughs> AJ writes, when I go to the movie theater, 
I like to gorge myself on popcorn and inevitably get up to get a free refill. Sometimes the counter is very busy and I always debate whether it's appropriate to bypass the line and ask for the refill directly since they could do it in 10 seconds between long transactions. Would this be rude of me or only fair since I've already paid and I'm missing my movie? Such a good question. Great question. By my nature, me personally, I don't like to upset certain social things, so I'll wait. But let me say something. If (laughs) If you already are the type of person that left the movie for the popcorn, you are the guy that deserves to cut the line. Yeah. Uh, and you say, sorry, I'm in a movie right now and I'm getting a free refill. You tell everyone if they have a problem with yes. it. Yes. I don't think I've gotten through an extra large popcorn ever. Oh, no. In my whole life. Even as a teenager, I don't think I got to the it's bottom. It's gross. Is the only way that you get the free refill if you get the extra large? Yeah. yeah. That's a ton of popcorn, man. Yeah, that way they know you'll never come back for a free refill. Don't you hate that feeling, though, where you eat the popcorn and stuff and then you're watching a movie where the guy's in such good shape? And then I'm like, gosh, I feel terrible. And then I think, well, he would eat popcorn if he was me watching a movie right now. Yeah. He had to do it. He had trainers. He had a team. Yeah. Yeah, I could do that, too. Well, I always think, like, (laughs) well, it's just popcorn. It's not that bad for me. Yeah. But all the stuff they put on it, that's bad. That crazy butter cancer they put on top of it? Anyway, AJ, I guess the bottom line is eat a little bit less popcorn. But since you're not the kind of guy that does that, just cut in line. Yeah. So here's a question from JR in L.A. Done with AJ on to JR? Yes. The question is... I'm staying at a friend's one-bedroom apartment while they're out of town. They left a note saying, quote, there are sheets and an air mattress in the closet. Use whatever you want. So um, do I sleep on their bed or the air mattress? <laughs> Very passive-aggressive it's note. So good. <laughs> Wait, they left an air mattress and sheets? There's both an empty bed that one could use, yeah. and there is an air mattress, and sheets have been provided. Mm, I'm saying use both. I'm thinking a princess in the pea scenario. <laughs> yeah. Blow up the air mattress and put it on the bed. That's a crazy question. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. I really would struggle with that. First of all, I feel like house-sitting is it's a charade. Everyone is pretending like the person doing the house-sitting is doing the people who own the house a favor. But really, the people who have the house are oh, yeah. giving that person a place to stay. Yeah, sure. yeah. But it's true. dressed yeah. up as, thank you so much yeah. for looking after yeah. our house. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank yeah. you for rummaging through my stuff. I think this person is saying, will you please stay on the air mattress? We're not comfortable with you mm-hmm. so. sleeping in our bed. They would not bring up the air mattress. No. Uh, yeah. It is passive-aggressive. That yeah, is kind of, do, and also kind of lame. I do think that part of it, if you're house sitting for someone, part of the gig is you get to sleep in a decent bed. For me, though, mm-hmm. I would prefer the air mattress just so I have my own space. It's true. And I'm yeah, not sleeping in someone's filth. Yeah. Just say yeah. it. Their body garbage. I would prefer not to be in their body garbage like at all. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would do is if I was good enough friends with them is texting saying, thank you so much. I slept on the air mattress. It was wonderful. And Calvin, my friend, took the bed. <laughs> Um, just so you know. So Calvin added his body garbage to your body garbage. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Jason Schwartzman, Adam Scott, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so right. much for telling our audience how to behave. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> no, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman, their new film, The Overnight, is in theaters now. Grab an extra large tub of popcorn and go check it out. Yeah, and if you take a break mid-movie, you can send us an etiquette question or at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for Chattering Class, where we are schooled by an expert in a party-worthy topic. The topic this week, redheadedness. And our teacher is British author Jackie Collins Harvey. Her witty new book is called Red, 
A History of the Redhead. Jackie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So first, let's get some facts out of the way. Redheads are very rare, correct? They are. 2% of the population on a global average. Slightly higher in some countries, some parts of the world than others. Well, where are most of them found, actually? That was my next question. You find them on the west coast of Scotland and in Ireland. You find quite a lot on the east coast of America, of course, because of the immigrant population in the 19th century. Mm. There is a very interesting intriguing little hot spot on the river Volga in Russia. Indeed. And there are these little satellite populations of redheads in India, in Iran, in Afghanistan, and in Western China as well. But mainly in these northern countries. And I wanted yeah. to, the reason I asked you to bring this up is because I love the kind of Darwinian reason you mentioned in the book as to why ah, redheads yeah. might be more populous <laughs> in the north. Vitamin D. That's right. That's pretty crazy. If you have the pale skin that so often goes with red hair, then your system is going to be much, much better at making vitamin D out of whatever sunlight is available. Yes. So it would be about an advantage to be a redhead in darker countries to the north because your body is better at making yeah. vitamin D. Yeah, that's right. And you need it for strong bones. And women in particular need it when they're pregnant and when they're breastfeeding. So my theory in the book, my kind of Darwinian, Mrs. Darwin theory in the book, <laughs> is that uh, one of the reasons why there's always been this connection between redheaded women in particular and sexuality and sensuality is that if you chose a redhead as a mate, then you would breed successfully. Um, you yourself are one of these rare red-headed creatures. I am. Um, on page one, you call your red hair, quote, the single most significant characteristic of your life. Yeah. How so? It's the thing everybody always remembers about you. If you're a redhead, they will distinguish you as being the one with red hair. And even more so, people's reactions to you are determined by the fact that you're a redhead. I, in your case, how was that manifest? It's always worked very well for me. One of the things that makes red hair so unusual is there's this big gender divide where red hair in men is often much more problematic than red hair is for women. And it's one of the few almost unique examples of stereotyping where the female of the species seems to get the better deal. Give me some examples of like the way that uh, red-headed women, for instance, are portrayed you know, positively in culture. Rita Hayworth, of course, famously not born red-headed, but the name everybody thinks of when you put the words red-headed and Hollywood together. Lucille Ball again dyed her hair red. Famously, her hairdresser told her that the hair may be brown, but the soul is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so he changed her hair yeah. to match her soul. Um, you have a lot of pre-Raphaelite beauties. The pre-Raphaelites absolutely adored red hair. They loved painting it. I think in general, artists like red-headed models. People remember you. The singer Ed Sheeran has said this, that when he was starting off in his career, he got much more notice because he was redheaded and because it was unusual. Mm -hmm. You stand out. But even even though generally in the book, as you mentioned, men with red hair are considered kind of bad people. They're often you know, portrayed well, they, as bullies or, or jerks. Yeah, it's one of the things that is changing now. Why in your research did you find that men get such a negative reaction? It begins about three and a half, four, 4,000 years ago when the ancient Greeks encountered the tribes of a region then known as Thrace. Mm. which is now pretty much modern Bulgaria. And there do seem to have been a lot of redheads in amongst the tribesmen of Thrace. And the tribes of Thrace were 
famous in the ancient world as being warriors of incredible ferocity. So any kind of contact with them tended to be very, very bloody indeed. And this became uh-huh. one of the qualities that was associated with red-haired men, that they were violent and had these ungovernable tempers and were barbaric. A few bad apples ruins it yeah. for everyone centuries <laughs> later. Yeah, yeah. Except Ed Sheeran, apparently. Except Ed Sheeran. <laughs> and Damien Lewis, who I learned this morning is being considered for the new James Bond. Yeah, very so interesting. So there's real change coming in there if that was to happen. And generally speaking, why do we care so much about hair? Why do we judge people so much based on it? I mean, there's a talk in the African-American community about how, you know, people really will judge each other according to hair. Clearly, redheadedness is some another thing. Why yeah. do, we, why do yeah. we care? It's just stuff that grows out of our head. Well, it is. But I think you've put your finger on it there, that it's to do with the head. So it's connected in some very intimate mm. way with our sense of identity. We send out a message to the outside world by the way that we present ourselves and our hair is frequently one of the most noticeable ways in which we do that. Hair has been called the interface between the the private person and the public world. And hair is is public property. One of the weird things that happens to you if you're growing up as a red-headed child is that people come up and comment upon or even try to touch your hair mm-hmm. as if it wasn't really a part of you at all. You were just sort of wearing it for their benefit, you know, like a hat. Jackie Collis Harvey, her new book is called Red, A History of the Redhead. And Brendan, here's a bonus fact. Okay. Redheads' unique genes give them a higher tolerance to pain than the rest of us. Oh, wow. That's true. Interesting. So basically, Damian Lewis has got to be the next Bond star. That's, yeah. It's, it's either him or Conan O'Brien. And now, time to eavesdrop. The name Alfonso Gomez Rejon may ring a bell. That's because his latest movie has been getting a lot of attention lately. But fortune didn't always smile on Alfonso. Today we overhear him tell Rico all about it. I was 17. Um, I'd been in New York maybe a couple of months. I moved from Laredo, Texas to go to film school. And I go to the San Gennaro Festival. Which is like the Italian street festival. Right. Uh, I've been in New York a month or two. Like intensely shy, probably made a couple of friends, and I see this fortune teller, and this is a true story. I see this fortune teller, she starts reading my palm, she says, so what do you want to do? What what are your dreams? What do you want to be? And I said, I'm here, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And I was so, I had such conviction, I was such a driven little dude. And she says, it's never going to happen. And... I was literally in shock. I was like catatonic, walking the streets, you know. I went back to my residence hall, which is this place called Weinstein, which is literally designed by a guy who designs prisons. And and Rico, I'm not kidding. I thought of this woman for my entire life. We're talking about it now, 25 years later. I mean, I still think of, I still know exactly what she had on, exactly what she looked like. Every day, I'd think she cursed me. I go to grad school start writing scripts that I'm hoping to direct. I get an agent quickly. The script doesn't sell. I can't get the agent back on the phone. I go back to New York, go back to PA, exactly what I was doing before getting my master's. Production assistant, I was hosing down uh, the outside of the 14th Street Armory where like homeless people, when they eat, eventually they evacuate. You know how that works? And I had to hose that down. I was, oh my God, I have a master's. I never told my parents about that job. 
And then um, I get a little movie and it's about to go and it falls apart. Another little movie, it's about to go. We're so close. I'm meeting with cast. Financing falls through. And it just kept happening. Everything fell apart. She cursed me. And finally, Ryan Murphy it gave me a chance to direct my feature film debut with The Town of the Dreaded Sundown. Two weeks before, yep, MGM's about to pull the plug. And then we, we tightened the script, we cut it down, and finally, I'm 40, I'm in Shreveport, and I'm about to roll on the first shot. I'm just expecting something to happen. Like lightning, something's gonna, I'm gonna fall off the boat. It was a houseboat with, in a scene with Dennis O'Hare, and so wide shot from the back of the boat. And we roll. I see the slate, it claps, we roll and cut. And I just breathe. I, I can't believe this happened. I took my my cinematographer outside, Michael Goy, and I said, did I, did I ever tell you this story about the San Gennaro Festival 20 years ago? So I, 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 the, the spell has lifted. Is that what you say? The, the spell has broken? It's and, and then immediately I went right into another movie. So hopefully um, I, I'm, I'm, I'll show her. Alfonso Gomez Rejon, director of the new film Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. It won the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year. That's in theaters now. His next film is set to star Hugh Jackman. So much for fortune tellers. That's right. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Tune in next week when our guests will include Joe Manganiello, one of the stars of Magic Mike XXL, and incidentally, People Magazine's hottest bachelor of 2014. But we've got 2015 locked, Rico. All right. Also a catch. Our producer, Jackson Musker. Engineering help came from Charlton Thorpe and Garrett Lang. Nina Potok is our associate producer. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. And our executive producer is Peter Clowney. As always, if you like what you hear, head to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening and bon appetit. 